If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Henry III is one of England's longest reigning monarchs. But his time on the throne saw a long period of peace punctured by an extraordinary revolution in 1258 when the king was removed from power by Simon de Montfort and a baronial council. Professor David Carpenter is a leading expert on 13th century England, and he recently released a second volume of his comprehensive biography of Henry III, covering his reign from the revolution of 1258 to his death in 1272. We spoke to David when the first volume of his biography came out, detailing the period from 1207 to 1258. So that is well worth listening to. But to make things easy for you, David Musgrove began by asking Professor Carpenter to quickly recap on the events of Henry's reign up until his start point for this second volume, 1258. Well, Henry would have said he'd be doing very well because he would have said, I've given a long, long period of peace to England, which was true, and people acknowledge that. He would, they, he would have said, I have been a most Christian king. I have given huge alms to the poor. I attend mass regularly. And above all, I, have, I am in the process of rebuilding Westminster Abbey. It's a great church for the kingdom, for the coronation, for everything like that. These are wonderful achievements. Unfortunately, his critics looked at another side and thought this was a, a simple-minded um, the naive king who had plunged the kingdom in all kinds of ridiculous foreign schemes, adventures, including trying to place his second son on the throne of Sicily, in which Henry was told this is madness. And yet he said, you know, it's given me by the Pope. Um, Edward the Confessor will find a way. I can do this. And everyone else thought this is just simply impossible. He'd also failed to reform local government. His eye was so fixed on his own righteousness and on these schemes of like the Sicilian scheme that he just lost touch with the kingdom itself. And so the, his sheriffs and judges became more and more oppressive. He also allowed the magnates to become more oppressive in the localities. So by the time we get to 1258, the court, the elite, is a revolution in the first place against the court, in the court of Henry III, one group of, uh, of courtiers 
Henry's turn on another, particularly Henry's foreign relatives. Uh, at the same time, they feel this is just a king who has reduced the kingdom to an imbecilic state. And then the whole failure to reform local government. So all these things come together and the total alienation of the church because it had to pay very large sums of money to the Pope uh, in order to fund this ridiculous scheme to make Henry's second son king of Sicily. So a couple of paradoxes there. Um, just uh, you also mentioned the Sicilian affair. Now you did. Now you did talk about that at a reasonable length in in the first podcast. So I, so I've, again, I've forgotten that. <laughs> uh, no, 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 doubt, that's absolutely, no I, doubt I wonder, I did. Could you, could you w- without going into great detail, could you just very quickly remind sure. us what that was and, sure. and why it matters? Well, the ruler of Sicily had been a Hohenstaufen. First of all, the great emperor Frederick II, uh, which who combines rule in Germany, uh, claims to authority in North Italy. But also, he's king of inherits the kingdom of Sicily, and Sicily is both the south of what we call Italy and the island of Sicily itself. It includes Naples. Naples is its Italian capital, hugely wealthy uh, kingdom. Well, um, Frederick II dies. His son Conrad takes it on, also becomes uh, king of Sicily. Conrad dies by this time in deep, deep disagreement with the Pope. And the Pope claims that he can confer the kingdom of Sicily on whoever he wants. So Conrad, uh, he's desperate, the Pope, to get someone who can remove the Hohenstaufens from their rule in Italy because the Hohenstaufens are challenging the authority of the Pope. So the, the problem about this is that although nominally the Pope can say, I depose Conrad, I depose his any successor, and I offer the kingdom to whoever I like, uh, you then had to go and conquer it from the Hohenstaufen ruler, from uh, a legitimate son of Henry of Frederick II who follows Conrad called, called Manfred. Um, so um, the Pope trawls this round Europe and tries to get other people to actually take this on. And of course, he tries actually Henry III's brother, Richard of Cornwall. And Richard of Cornwall says, you might as well say, I offer you the moon, go up and take it. Um, well, of course, Henry's not like that. Um, he's in some ways sim- simple-minded, simplex. And he thinks, gosh, this is an offer from the Pope. It must be an offer from God. The confessor will find a way. And he signs up to the most ridiculous deal in which on the one hand, he has to give the Pope £90,000, probably three years annual revenue of England, simply for the offer. And then he has to take an army out to Sicily to conquer the the kingdom uh, for his son. Well, Parliament in England said, look, this is just impossible. I mean, A, you're not a military leader. You're a Pacific king. Um, Even if you didn't have to pay all this money first, because the Pope says, I want the money first. You don't take the army until I've had the money. The main reason why the Pope wants Henry is to get his money. So he says, look, pay the money and then take the army. Well, Henry could neither pay the money, (laughs) let alone get close to taking the army. And so the whole thing just runs into the sand. And yet hugely unpopular, um, particularly with the English church, who have to start paying this £90,000 to the Pope. I mean, no other English king would have have accepted such a deal. It was probably the most ridiculous deal any king of England had ever accepted. Extraordinary thing is that Henry was able to survive that, and the in, well, of course, he in the same wasn't because there was a revolution in 1258, of which this um, simple scheme was a, a major cause. But on the other hand, it didn't stop Henry being revered almost for his piety and for the peace he'd given. Long years of peace since the Magna Carta Civil War. Okay, so so Sicily was was an unwise venture. You could say in that again. <laughs> now, Sorry, I ought to say not everyone agrees with that. There are historians, uh, I think, um, misguidedly perhaps, but I respect them who argue otherwise. But um, I think not. Well, that's that's the beauty of history, isn't yeah. it? We expect people to, to disagree. We do. Now, look in in the intro. To, to, to this excellent but you say uh, something like the uh, the political revolution robbing Henry of power means he is less central to volume 2 than to volume 1 so obviously you're talking about 1258 what, what happens there and we will get on to that in just a second I, I wonder if you might just introduce us to a few of the people who are more central to the sure. story from 1258 sure. the central character for a large part of this book is Henry III's brother-in-law Simon de Montfort Earl of Leicester 
one of the most extraordinary people to ever dignified and defiled at the same time English history, a quite a remarkable man. And he is central to the seizure of power in 1258, in which a baronial council takes over the government of the kingdom. I, I, I mean, a revolution far more radical than Magna Carta, because Magna Carta left King John in charge of central government. John could still appoint ministers as he liked, pursue what policies he liked. Whereas 1258, a baronial council reduces Henry to a cipher, and it essentially then rules the country. And Simon de Montfort is absolutely central to that. He becomes even more central four years later when uh, Henry recovers power. Montfort is the only person who refuses to accept that recovery of power. He returns to England in 1263. And between 1263 and 1265, his death at the Battle of Evesham, um, he basically becomes the governor of the country. So he's the first um, magnet to seize power and govern the country. And he's also the first populist leader in English history because he had a wonderful political sense of the issues which are going to resonate with the wider public. So, you know, those two things together make him quite extraordinary. I mean, of course, it, in some ways, of course, I think the Victorians are quite right to sort of compare him to sort of a Cromwell or also Gladstone figure, you know, these these sorts of um, very, very charismatic people who've been able to, to, to sort of seize the political agenda. I mean, from the word go, he was highly controversial, highly controversial. Because on the one hand, his enemies said, what's driving this man on? It's a lust for power and it's a whole series of material grievances because although he'd married the king's sister, he constantly said he had not received the, 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 the lands and endowment which ought to have gone with her. And so he sees the revolution of 1258 as putting right those material grievances because he's now in charge of government or very influential in government. And also he sees it as a way of, you know, just having power. He has contempt for the king who he thinks on one very famous occasion, which Henry never forgot. He, he said to Henry, you're so silly, you should be set apart like the Carolingian king, Charles the Simple, Charles La Sauté in, in French, which makes it sound even more resonant. So that's what the enemies of him said. Montfort would have just denied that with contempt. He would have said, in terms of my material grievances, they're only, you know, it's only right that they should be adjusted and put right. But one much wider than that, this man is driven by a great sense of religiosity. And, and I think one of the most remarkable things about this period is the intertwining of religion and politics. And I think that's another unique feature about 1258, 1272, that religion and politics are absolutely inseparable. And what's driving Montfort forward, and in some ways the reform of 1258, is this deep, deep feeling that we have to reform the realm in order to purify our own souls. For us to get salvation, we need to act justly ourselves. The barons need to act justly. And, and, and it's in those terms that we, we, we have to understand what, what's going on here. And, and, and there's a great background there with Montfort because on the one hand, of course, he – You've got to remember who his father was. His father was the Simon de Montfort who had led the Albigensian crusade, who had died in its course in 1218, died for a righteous cause. And Montfort never forgets that. So he says he's always seeking for a righteous cause like his father. But he's also Montfort very closely allied with reformist churchmen, Robert Grostes, Bishop of Lincoln, Adam Marsh, the master of the Franciscan friars. And and, and this the whole advent of the friars, uh, theo theological thought, everything like that is central to, to, Mont to Montfort. And I, I think it's important to say we know more about Montfort than almost any other medieval nobleman. And that's because of all the accusations made against him by the king, which were all written down and probably dictated by the king. And then his arrogant, um, self-confident, self-righteous replies, which give an extraordinary measure of the man. So just as we can come closer to Henry III, I think, than any other medieval king, we can come closer to Simon de Montfort than any other medieval um, nobleman. So two other things which help him get to the top, or three other things. 
First, as I've said, he had a wonderful political feel for the issues which are going to galvanize local communities. And the major issue he seized on when he comes back to William 1263 is England for the English. And this is a very, very important period in the development of English national identity shaped, uh, unfortunately, by hostility to foreigners. And what Montfort, on the one hand, plays on the fact that Henry had introduced all these foreign relatives, also says he's trying now to bring in foreign mercenaries in order to recover power. And in 1263, he added to the reforms of 1258 this statute against aliens, which expelled all foreigners from the country, very um, sort of resonant today in a sort of way, and said, um, well, it first of all said, um, no foreigner can ever hold office in England. And then it says, all, and all foreigners must depart apart from those who are accepted by Parliament. So that's an extraordinary you know, addition to the reforms of 1258, this statute against aliens. So that's one thing, this amazing political feel. And, and in the extremity of his regime, you know, he keeps stressing all the reforms, the statute against aliens, and, and these and he circulates the reforms to wide to all the counties, wants to preserve there and so on. So he's reaching out in this amazing way. The second uh, vital thing was that he was a great general. And the uh, quite unlike Henry, who was a Rex Pacificus, and he knows how to fight war. He knows about war as ravaging, and that's partly because he'd been the king's lieutenant in Gascony in the 1250s, where a lot of turbulence. He'd understood how you had to ravage the, the lands and the crops of your enemies, and he does that when he comes back in 1263. And then in 64-5, he wins this amazing battle at Lewis against all the odds, captures the king, uh, and, and you know he marches out of London, uh, because battles are so rare. You've got to remember that, that you need huge self-confidence to to fight a battle. Most people avoid battles. 1066 shown how, you know, decisive and disastrous they could be. And yet Montfort, although he marches out of London early in May 1264 with no other aim but to bring the king's army to battle, he does so at Lewis, and an amazing night march in which he takes the army up onto the top of the hill during the night at Lewis. So when the king wakes up in Lewis Priory, he looks up, and there's Montfort's army on the downs above, and then they can crash down and win this amazing battle in which Henry is is taken prisoner. So that's the second thing which Montfort had, which is the, he was a great, great war leader. And the third is that he does have a very loyal following of um, of Midlands Knights, because his great base was Kenilworth, amazing castle. If you still go to Kenilworth, I think you can feel uh, Montfort's power in the surrounding countryside. So it's a very loyal following of Midlands Knights. And, uh, and around that, there's churchmen, and, and that takes us back to the issues, the political issues, which Montfort un understood. So, sorry, I've gone on far too long about, <laughs> about this amazing man. Well, well clearly, he's very, uh, very important in the yeah, story yeah. of, of this part of the biography. Okay. There are other, of course, central characters in this uh, second volume. One is Henry's Queen, in that she plays a very, very important part in the politics of this period. She was far tougher uh, than Henry herself. She actually supported the revolution of 1258 against her husband, against Henry, because it got rid of the uh, the half-brothers of the king from Poitou, who her faction of foreigners from Savoy had quarreled quarreled with. Although Eleanor was from Provence, it was her uncles from Savoy who came to England were established. So she actually supported the revolution of 1258 against her husband. She then changes her mind and played a big part in Henry's initial recovery of power in, in 12... 1261. She was partly responsible for the disasters of Mont's, Montfort's return in 1263. And then uh, in 1264, after Henry had been captured at Lewis, um, she was abroad and she raises an army to invade England. I, I mean, amazing thing to do, you know, and she gathers this very large army in Flanders to invade. In the end, she runs out of money and no invasion took place. But it's interesting that the, the 
attitude to women in politics in that which is a a good thing in a way in that the the medieval chroniclers commenting on this although they fear an invasion by foreigners are full of praise for the amazonian exploits of elena in in raising the army and and that's an interesting indication of the scope which a woman might have to play in politics. And in fact, one section of, the, of, of volume two, of course, Eleanor runs throughout it, is that I have a section on women in politics in this period. And the more you look, the more you actually find, if you look carefully, you can find a lot of the, um, both the people at the top, the countesses and so on, play an important part in politics, particularly as castellans of castles. Um, but also lower down the social scale too, you find women in political action. And so I think that's an important sub-theme of the book. Sorry, the other great character in the book is Henry's son, Edward, the future Edward I. um, There's a wonderful biography of him, um, both by Michael Presswich in the Yale series and by Mark Mark Morris, um, the future conqueror of Wales, the, the attempted conquest of Scotland. And from about 1263 onwards, it's very much Edward rather than his father calling the shots. And they are shots because what Edward sees is that I need to defeat Montfort by war. There's no point trying to compromise with this person. And the moment in 1263, which I've looked at in some detail, when Edward takes over from his father is quite extraordinary in which you suddenly feel this galvanic force driving on the king's party, driving on the king's army, totally different from the sort of way Henry had acted in all his previous reign. You know, on the one hand, his lethargy against Edward's aggressive energy is quite extraordinary. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Brilliant. Right. Um, we need to get into the, into the thick of the action. Yeah, yeah. So 1258, um, that you've talked about a revolution. It's, it's a, obviously a tumultuous year. You've also mentioned Magna Carta, um, which just to, to remind anybody, that was that was um, uh, from King John's reign, uh, Henry's predecessor, yeah. 1215. Uh, just, to, just to add that. So the, the, the first Magna Carta is 1215. But, but, but of course, that was a failure. At the end of 1215, John had rejected it. The great barons had um, equally abandoned it because they've said, you know, we can't hold John to this, so we'll get another king. And so they offered the throne to the eldest son, the king of France. So it, 
end of 1215, it looks as though the charter was a failure without a future. How does it survive? It's because John dies October 1216. The minority government of Henry's nine-year-old, uh, led by William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, um, they realise the only way forward is to totally change course to accept what John had rejected and to and w- w- which Louis. The, to whom the barons off the throne was in a way ignoring um, and to give a new version of Magna Carta. So they issued, as soon as Henry comes to the throne, a new version of Magna Carta is issued in 1216. Another version was issued 1217 in order to, um, at the end of the war, combined with a separate charter dealing with the royal forest. And that's only then that the name Magna Carta comes in to distinguish the, the big charter from the small charter um, about the Royal Forest. And then 1225, the final definitive version of Magna Carta, which is the one which has been always, which is still on the statute book today in, in some of its clauses. And at last, Henry seals it himself. And it's um, at, at last, it's accepted by all the great and good of the land um, from whatever part they paid in the Civil War. So Magna Carta from then on is established. And uh, and what's I think modern, new research, including some of my own, has shown is how well it was known, in that the detail of it was studied again and again and again in the 13th century. Different versions were compared, um, commentaries were written about it, and so that's to be fair to Henry, you know, that's something he with which he has to deal. And in many ways, his rule was congruent with the Charter. Um, what it wasn't was wise and you know, the, it, the charter doesn't stop him doing all these stupid things. The charter doesn't stop him, the Sicilian thing, and I think they're breaching the charter. It doesn't stop him giving all this patronage to his foreign relatives. charter doesn't say anything about that. And so in a way, the revolution of 1258 is to fill the gap left by the charter. Ah, well, that was my question. So, right. so is 1258 just a simple reheating of what was what was demanded in 1215 and no, then no, and re- uh, continued? Or sure. is it something completely new? It's something completely new in two ways. First of all, um, the charter itself does nothing at all to take control of central government out of the king's hands. John can still appoint who he likes as his councillors, pursue what policies he likes, foreign policies and so on, make, appoint who he likes as his sheriffs and so on. Um, all that ends in 1258. A baronial council simply takes over the government of the country. And some foreign diplomats writing in 1258-59 uh, say, you know, that the king can do nothing now without the council's consent. So that's radically, radically new, revolutionary new. The other extraordinary thing about 1258, though, is that, of course, this is combined with this huge reform of local government. Now, uh, Magna Carta too had tried to reform local government uh, and uh, many of the clauses are aimed against the king's local government officials, the sheriffs. What's dramatically extraordinarily new in 1258-59 and again I think there's no parallel in English history to this is that the barons themselves say we have sinned too. Our officials have been oppressive and tyrannous and so we must be subject to reform just as much as the king. I just want to clarify. So 1258, the baronial council, as you say, effectively deposes Henry yep. in a way or, or at least takes, yeah, takes yeah. power from him. Um, how does that happen? I mean, that, that's how, how can they, do they just march in and say, right, we're in charge? You've got it exactly right. Uh, yeah, it, they, it was done by violence, but, but shrouded violence so that people didn't quite realise it. Um, there was a march on the King's Hall, on Westminster Hall, in which the uh, great parliament of Westminster, April 1258, Henry is begging for a gigantic tax to pursue the Sicilian um, project and in the end um, the, the barons say well look we'll reply to you on a particular day 30th of April and on the 30th of April they marched in full armour into the great hall at Westminster Henry comes down from his uh, chapels uh, uh, above meets them and and they say uh, and he, he realises at once this is completely unprecedented they left their swords at the entrance to the hall but they're in full armour and Henry cries out, what is this, my lords? Am I, wretched fellow, your prisoner? And um, Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk, says, no, my lord, no, but 
But basically, you must hand over the government of the country to us, and then the reforms all go from there. But as I said, the extraordinary thing about the reforms is that in the end, it's not just a court revolution in which the king's unpopular half-brothers from Poitou are expelled and the barons take over the government of the country. All that happens. But then the barons have this huge reform of local government in which their own officials and their own malpractices are just as much subject to reform as are the malpractices of king. And that's where the religiosity of it all comes in. And what was the popular reaction to, to this happening? Were people up in arms? Well, that's another quite extraordinary thing in that here is a great unprecedented revolution um, demeaning the king, uh, reducing him to a cipher. Everyone thought it was a good thing. But the qualification to that is that, that they didn't really quite know what was happening. In, the, in some ways, this is a secret revolution at the top because the... The barons in the great proclamations explaining the authority of the council were not explicit that the council was actually going to take over the government of the country. They presented it as though the king had willingly um, agreed that various reforms should be promulgated by the council. Um, they didn't indicate that the council was actually going to govern the country for the next 12 years, which is what Henry had in, in a way been made, made to accept. So they presented this as a, as a revolution in which the king consents to it for various reforms to put matters right. But with that qualification... There's no indication in 1258 that people thought this was a illegitimate revolution. And gradually, a name for the reforms of 1258-59, the Provisions of Oxford, is introduced. And they are hugely popular. And that's another very striking thing, which partly due to Montfort, but the Baron generally, they'd seized control of the agenda, that everyone accepted that what, what, what's all this all about between 1258 and 1265? It's about the provisions of Oxford. It's about the great reforms of 1258-59 and trying to um, accept them. And so, you, you know, the political program is central to what's going on. In a way, again, I don't think there's any precedent for perhaps the ordinances of 1311 to some extent. But after that, you can't think of a period when a political programme is everyone accepts this is what we're fighting over. Either we're for it or we're against it because it, reduce, it, it strips the king of power. Okay. When, when do things get violent? When do things turn nasty? Well, Henry III recovered power in 1261. And that was due to basically a breakup of the colonial of the baronial coalition. Uh, that was what made the recovery of power possible. And I'm afraid Montfort, having in a way, you could credit him for the reforms of 1258, um, but you could also credit him with destroying them because he had quarrelled with um, Richard, the, uh, uh, several of the other great nobles, Richard de Clare. Uh, uh, Earl of Gloucester, and uh, he, he quarrelled with the the leading official of the baronial regime, Hugh Bigod. And I think there was a, a very considerable feeling that Montfort is an extremist. He's trying to drive us further than we're, we're prepared to go. Um, there was also resistance to some of the local reforms. The idea that these reforms should uh, embrace the malpractices of the barons themselves was not popular with some of the very great barons, with Richard de Clare in particular. So the baronial coalition breaks up and the queen changes her mind. And that's because Montfort himself had quarrelled with her own party, with um, Peter of Savoy in particular. And so uh, the Queen, Henry's brother, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who's King of Germany, they mastermind the King's recovery of power in 1261. And the only baron who refused in the end to accept the king's recovery of power was Simon Montfort. And this is a crucial moment in his career. He leaves England at the end of 1261 saying, I would rather die without land than uh, depart from the truth and be perjured. The truth being basically the provisions 
of Oxford. So he goes back to France. Henry thought it was all over then. He thought, you know, wonderful. Um, in 1262, he uh, presses on with rebuilding Westminster Abbey. Uh, he decides to go out and see his brother-in-law, uh, Louis IX in France. Um, he thinks it's all over. And th- this is where the uh, disasters take place for him. And he, Henry is not entirely to blame for this because what happened was that his eldest son, Edward, has now <laughs> has now quarrelled with his entourage. And just why this happened is not at all clear. But Edward had been very close to a series of great barons of the Welsh March. He'd been very close to John de Warren, Earl of Surrey. His leading official was a, a great knight from Kent called Roger of Laybourne. You can still see Laybourne Castle and the Heart Shrine in the church there of, of Roger. Um, Edward had broken up with them in the course of 1262. I think partly his mother's urging. His mother didn't like them and thought that they'd been wasting your resources. Uh, Anyway, so what happens in the course of 1262 is this party of uh, ex-Edwardians forms and uh, uh, and, and overseas, meanwhile, is Simon de Montfort and the two get together. Montfort says to them, and I think Montfort was the agent, he said, look, what will solve all your problems is if we reassert the provisions of Oxford, if we strip the king of power, if we punish the queen and her party, you'll be back in to control of government and, um, you know, that will solve your problems. And Montfort comes back to England in the spring of 1263. He places himself at the head of a new movement designed to um, reimpose the provisions of Oxford. He then introduces the statute against aliens and says, look, also, this is going to be England for the English because, of course, get rid of the Queen's party who are foreigners. And it's this revolution, uh, the second stage of the uh, of the revolutionary period, which um, en- begins with Montfort taking control of government. It, after that, it does become fascinating, but hugely complex yeah. because the king himself... Sorry, you want to... Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, so I, I think we're probably going to have to skip over a bit because we've yeah, only yeah, got yeah, some yeah. 10 minutes to get, get to the end and there's quite a lot to come. But basically, so de Montfort comes back, there's civil war, there's violence, yeah, yeah. there's bloodshed, um, uh, the Battle of Lewis, which you've talked yeah, about yeah, earlier, yeah. where uh, he... he, he well, did, what, 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 what is the outcome of the Battle of Lewis? Well, after the Battle of Lewis, I mean, Montfort it appears supreme. Uh, the king is the most extraordinary thing. The king is in captivity. The king's brother, another king, because Richard Earl of Cornwall is also king of Germany, is in captivity. (laughs) The king's son, Edward, is in captivity. And Richard's son, Edmund, is also in captivity. So the whole head of the Royalist Party are all captives, as are a large number of uh, barons who had uh, uh, opposed Montfort. So it it began, you know, and then Montfort from May 1264 onwards is the governor of the, of the kingdom. And that's where we have his amazing parliament of January 1265, where, again, reaching out for a wide constituency, this is the first parliament. to, And this is why Montfort, of course, is often considered, the quotes, the father of parliament. This is the first parliament to which knights from the counties and burgesses ta- from the towns have been summoned. So it's the first parliament with an embryo House of Commons. A lot of academic work been done on it, but no, nothing has destroyed that basic evidence, as far as we can see, that this was indeed the, the first parliament with a, uh, a quotes, ha- ha- House of Commons. So, you know, that uh, Montfort seems to be reigning supreme at, at that point, this amazing parliament uh, he holds. I mean, no one, when it breaks, when it ends in April, May 1265, April 1265, with another reissue of Magna Carta, uh, with uh, once again all the reforms of 1258 uh, promulgated, would have guessed that within a few months, Montfort would be dead. Hmm. Okay. Well, how, how does that happen? Because it sounds like he's got all the cards. Yeah. He's checkmate against Henry and, yeah. and his family. How, uh, but then, um, as, you, well, as you're about to tell us, no doubt, he meets a very grisly end. How, how does that come to yeah. pass? Uh, this takes us back a little bit to Montfort himself in that he inspired huge devotion amongst people 
below him and huge popularity in the wider political community, while at the same time antagonizing equals and people who thought they were his superiors. And I think they found his self-righteousness, his self-confidence absolutely intolerable. And the beginning of the end of the regime is when Montfort quarrels with someone who very much thought he was his equal, although he was much younger, and that's the new Earl of Gloucester, Gilbert de Clare. And I think this was fundamentally over Gilbert de Clare feeling Montfort disregarded him, didn't take him seriously enough. And so Montfort quarrels with Gilbert de Clare and goes to the Welsh March, goes to Hereford in order to open negotiations with him to see if we could reach a settlement with him. And at that moment, um, Henry III's son, Edward, escapes from captivity. And this is one of the most famous individual exploits of the 13th century because madly Montfort had allowed Edward to go outside Hereford to sort of take the air and exercise himself, obviously surrounded by, by guards and so on. And so what Edward did was to say, well, look, why don't we test out these horses, a whole group of horses, let's see what, you know, what's the best horse. So there are sort of half a dozen of these horses and Edward tries one after the other and tires them out until there's only one left. (laughs) Then he gallops off on it and of course there are no other horses to follow him. And so um, Edward escapes, joins up with Gilbert de Clare. And from that point onwards, Montfort's regime begins to disintegrate. Quite a lot of the sheriffs and other people who had supported him see the writing on the wall. Because I I suppose we ought to wider context, which is that Montfort's great victory in May 64 at Lewis had been against against the odds. By this time, a large group of, of magnets really had had enough. They really felt, they they did feel a sense of illegitimacy about it all. And so once the regime begin, it's it's a sort of quite a narrow base, the regime, which is why Montfort tried to reach out at the parliament to knights and, and townsmen. But in terms of great magnet support, it's limited. And so once Edward is free, once he joined up with Gilbert de Clare, the regime begins to collapse. And that takes us on to the campaign, which ended at the the Battle of, of Evesham. And Montfort's death there. And, uh, you know, this wasn't... And, of course, it's, it's, it, this is really a turning point in late medieval politics because the Clement centuries now give place to the centuries of blood, and which is what the famous historian Maitland um, said, because previously in great battles... Great nobles were never killed. I mean, at Lewis, very, very few knights and nobles were killed. Of course, townsmen and peasants were killed as much as you like at Lewis, but very few knights were killed. And equally true at the, the Great Battle of Lincoln, which uh, in 1217, which established Henry on the throne. Um, this time, it's all different. Um, about 30 of Montfort's leading supporters were butchered on the battlefield and they were deliberately killed. They weren't killed in the fighting. Basically, their surrenders were not accepted, which was what was so exceptional. And of course, the high point or the low point of this was Montfort himself, who was not merely killed, but his body was horrifically mutilated. So his head was cut off, his limbs were cut off, his testicles were cut off and stuffed in his mouth and then hung either side of his nose. And in that condition, his head was sent to um, the wife of one of his great baronial enemies, Roger Mortimer, uh, uh, Matilda de Mortimer uh, uh, Wigmore. Uh, and uh, this was, I think, t- to underline the, the hu- uh, what, it, what it reflected was huge bitterness which had entered English politics in this period and the, you know, the, the humiliation which Montfort had inflicted on the king, his son and so on. And it was quite deliberate because a, a, an amazing new account of the Battle of Evesham shows that before the battle, Edward and Gilbert de Clare had appointed a death squad. They'd appointed a group of sergeants whose only aim at the battle was to kill Montfort. And then when he was killed, obviously his body was horribly mutilated. I mean, there is a a more comforting sequel to this in a way in that, okay, so 
which is both bad and good in that partly because of the great bitterness and everything, the Evesham didn't end the war. The war went on for another two years because Henry and Edward, I think in great unwisdom, but understandable unwisdom, decided to confiscate all the estates of the Montfortians. And of course, that left, while at the same time leaving them at large, and so that left a huge group of disinherited who then continue the war for two years until there's a final settlement, and which papal legate in which they were allowed to recover their um, their, their lands, though with financial penalties. Uh, and I think that's one another area where Henry, alas you know, should have seen. And Ed, but I blame Edward more than anybody else for the policy of disinheritance. But sorry, the good thing is that in the end, it, there was a settlement, there was peace. And by the end of Henry's reign, um, the, the, um, the, the political community was coming together again. And sorry, to finish with Henry himself, you, you know, I've said he's not central to volume two. And that's true up to a point. And of course, he, you know, it's dominated by Montfort, by Edward, by the Queen. And yet that Henry survives, that he's not at any point deposed, that there's no official move, whatever Montfort was thinking at the end, to actually depose him. I think he's got himself to thank for that. If he'd been like King John, I'm sure he would have been deposed because John was deposed unsuccessfully by, in, in, in 1215 after he'd rejected Magna Carta. So why not with Henry? And I think it's because of his huge prestige as the most Christian king, you know, deeply pious man. He may have been foolish, but he was deeply pious. He built Westminster Abbey. And people did say that Whatever the weakness of his rule, he gave us long years of peace. And then you could contrast Henry's peace with Montfort's war. And so that's how Henry survived. And in a way, I think it's encouraging. There was a different model of kingship. You didn't have to be a, a great warrior leader in order to be you couldn't say Henry was a successful king, but you could say he was a survivor king. Uh, you know, there are different ways, different models of kingship. And Henry doesn't quite fit into the model of, of a wise, peaceable, merciful Christian king. But he ticks some of those boxes. And that's why um, I think we can s still celebrate his reign. Um, now, just just quickly on legacy, you've you've mentioned a bit then about how uh, Henry's reign and particularly what happened to De Montfort sort of um, introduced this this age of violence. Yeah. You know, uh, you sort of talked about that a bit. But one other thing that um, you talk about in terms of legacy um, is is you've mentioned a couple of times sort of the attitude of, of England for the English, um, and you say that um, in 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 there's a paragraph here uh, the rewards to the Lusignans and the Savoyards, so the, the 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 foreigners in Henry's court did much to tinge and taint English national feeling with hostility towards foreigners. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm quoting back to you what you've, what you've written. Um, so, I, so it feels like you're kind of saying, or maybe I'm misunderstanding, but th is this the period when xenophobia becomes entrenched? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, there's a wider background there because, of course, the loss of Normandy and the continental possessions in 1204 end the Anglo-Norman baronage. Until that point, there was still an elite in England who had um, land in Normandy, land in England. And in a way, that must have affected their feeling of Englishness. They were sort of Anglo-Norman as much as they were uh, simply English. Well, after 1204, that's no longer the case. All the great nobles in England, with one or two exceptions, are born in England and they live in England. So they can then share the Englishness of all of everybody else, of the knights, uh, free tenants, peasants below them in English society. And so that's the wider background to the ability of Montfort and other people to exploit this, but also the wider background to the feeling of resentment and this sort of paradox of Henry, who on the one hand is the most English king, and yet on the other hand is giving all this patronage to foreign relatives. On the one hand, the uh, as I've said, the, the Poitou in uh, half-brothers, and on the other hand, the sub boyard ankles of his wife. And a huge amount of patronage is giving, going to these people. And so 
you know, they're, they're very visible at Parliament and so on. So Parliament after Parliament in the 1240s and 1250s, you see these foreign courtiers of, of the king. And that plays increasingly badly to the uh, now a very, very English political community. It's already there in 1258 when the half-brothers are expelled from England. And then it's Montfort who just grasps this in 1263 with his statute against aliens. And I think from then onwards in English political life that an important aspect of Englishness is hostility to foreigners in a way it, it hasn't been before. Brilliant. Right. One more thing before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, you, you say in uh, in the conclusion that, you know, when you're talking to people and, and saying, oh, I've been working on this biography yeah. of, of Henry III, which I, I know you've been saying for probably quite some years to, yeah. to people, uh, and the response tends to be, oh, which one is that? Yes. So um, so obviously you've got a bit of work to do to, to sell Henry III yes. to the masses. If I gave you a minute to sell Henry Henry III to, to, to the lay audience, what would you say? Why, why, would, why should we care about Henry well, III? Well, I think we should care about him... Uh, First reason that we can get closer to Henry III than any other medieval king, and that's because these amazing letters, which uh, are preserved on the chancery rolls, which show what the king was like. You know, emotional, warm-hearted, a connoisseur of art and architecture, um, simplex in many ways, but a deeply pious and Christian. So, you know, we can get very, very close to Henry. Uh, Secondly, of course, this is a hugely significant period. And you've discussed the England for the English, the whole development of English national feeling, the the whole role of religiosity, political reform, and the beginnings of Parliament. All these things make the reign itself very, very uh, significant. And I think ultimately, I, I think this was, you couldn't describe Henry as a great king, or as a, even a good king. But certainly he did good things. And the, the peace with France, the good relations with Scotland, um, ultimately a settlement with Wales, all, all these things ought it, to have sort of pointed the way to the future. They didn't. But there was one thing which, of course, preserves Henry um, for all time, and that's Westminster Abbey, because we owe to Henry III the great, great church where the coronation, of course, of King Charles will take place on May the 6th this year. That was David Carpenter. Henry III, Reform, Rebellion, Civil War, Settlement, 1259 to 1272, is out now published by Yale University Press. You can listen to our earlier interview with David that I referred to in the intro by searching for Henry III in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Thank you.